1: In a lot of countries, like the United States, the coronavirus pandemic has only gotten even like a little under control after the introduction of vaccines. In other places like India, the virus is rampaging out of control. But in Vietnam, there have only been 35 deaths from coronavirus, 35, that is not an understatement. It's not 35,000, it's literally 35 total deaths. So what did Vietnam do right? And what lessons can that have for places in the world today that are still dealing with significant outbreaks? That's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham here with Jan Williams and Alex Ward. That's normal. You're all used to it. But we've got a special guest today to talk about Vietnam, uh, Julia Balooze, who is Vox's senior correspondent covering health. Hello, Julia.
2: Hello. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, We're very excited to have Julia on, not only because she wrote an excellent piece about the Vietnamese experience – in uh, a big Vox package on lessons learned during the pandemic, but also because she's coming to us from Austria, as Alex did for a period of time, making it an extra special worldly episode in in a number of different senses. So we're we're very pumped to to be having this international conversation today. Uh, but I guess probably we should start talking about Vietnam now. Your piece, Julia, centers on one particular policy area that seems to have been really successful for Vietnam: border closures. Tell me what they did and how it was different than the border closures that we saw in the United States and elsewhere.
2: So many, many countries have put in travel restrictions and different types of border closures in this pandemic. So it was the second most common policy response that governments have used um, when, when the coronavirus started spreading last year. But what Vietnam did that was quite different and only a few other countries, mostly islands, have done is it essentially sealed, like hermetically sealed its borders. So we're not talking like, you know, you can't come here if you're from a certain country with an outbreak, or you can only come in if you kind of do this voluntary quarantine for two weeks. We're talking like canceling all commercial flights. Anyone who came into the country had to get special permission from the government. Wow. Um, if, if you did get on a repatriation flight, you had to, you were literally at the airport, there's this scene in the story where we, we worked with local reporters there, because, yeah, again, you can't enter the country. <laughs> and they went to the airport to meet a repatriation flight arriving from Paris. So everyone is in, like, blue gowns, masks, like, head coverings. Like, they look like they're, they were just coming from a biosafety hazard lab. And they're ferried directly to a quarantine facility. There's two options, these, like, state-run quarantine facilities or a hotel quarantine, but in both cases you're not leaving the room, you're surveilled, and you have to wait out. Um, Sometimes it's been up to 21 days, and then you're tested multiple times and then released from quarantine. And so it's like taking travel, it's like, yeah, travel restrictions on steroids.
3: I I just want to kind of compare that. To be fair, I haven't traveled uh, anywhere, uh, I went to the grocery store for the first time a couple weeks ago, so that was exciting. Um, I'm proud of yeah, you, John. That's pretty it, it was like a big deal. I got dressed up. It was like a whole thing. <laughs> I got dressed up. <laughs> By that, I mean I put on <laughs> pants. Um, so, but you know, if I remember correctly, like it took a while for the US to even do things like, you know, at airports, actually like checking temperatures and things like that for people or testing, you know, making sure that you had your test and had tested negative coming in. So, like, what what it was it kind of like in, in the US? Like compare that to what it looks like when you, I don't know, land in like at JFK Airport or something like that.
2: So wait now, I actually just had friends who flew from London to New York and they went in on global entry. So they didn't have to talk to anyone. <laughs> they were questioned leaving Heathrow about that they're they're married with a child and they don't have the same last name and they had to like provide documentation because he's American and she isn't, that they're that they're a couple and I think they had to provide a negative PCR test in London, but then they entered the US, no questions asked, and there was only a suggested quarantine period. So you didn't have to, not a mandatory quarantine. So in other words, yeah, you weren't donning like full-on PPE and and ferried in a state bus to like a a monitored quarantine facility. But I think like the, the big contrast is by March 2020, Vietnam basically did what I just described. They closed themselves to the world. And what we were seeing in Europe and in the U.S. was this still this like targeting of restrictions at countries where there were outbreaks. So, you know, Chinese travelers, travelers from Italy, travelers from Iran, um, these countries that had a lot of COVID spread, many places were still taking that tactic. And Vietnam was like, nope, we don't want anyone coming in. The way to think about it, I think, is um yeah, these targeted restrictions versus like a total travel ban which was unprecedented. And when China started to do this with the quarantine of Wuhan in late January 2020, you know, everyone was saying it's a human rights violation and we're not going to see other countries follow suit. And of course, international travel restrictions ended up being hugely common. But Vietnam is on the far end of what countries have been doing. I, I guess I'm
4: surprised a bit by why this seems so radical. I mean, I'm not denying that, you know, basically shutting off an entire country off like is a major step. But this seems on its face like the obvious course of action. Like, why wouldn't you shut yourself off from the world? Doesn't that most, that seems like most obviously to keep the pandemic from spreading. Like, I remember in the U.S. you had, the you know, former President Trump bragging, like, I shut off flights from China. We're all good. And yet, you know, they could still come in from Europe or Canada or Mexico or wherever. And like there's a reason island countries have done really well, right? Because you can just basically say no flights coming in, no one's gonna come in via land borders or even some sea borders, and like it, it's contained. It seems to me that Vietnam just purposely made itself an island and it worked. I'm surprised, I guess, that other nations didn't do that. Like, I get that there were the concerns of, well, it's going to be harder for aid to get in. It's going to be harder for all other kinds of assistance to get in. But unless I'm alone, and you can tell me if I'm crazy here, but I remember thinking of being in the pandemic, why isn't everything just completely shut
2: down? Obviously, as you know, on the worldly podcast, the world is just highly interconnected, right? Right? Like people cross borders every day for work. There's like mass migration, obviously trade. And and there's many costs to completely shutting down. Um, Vietnam made this calculation that basically they said, like, we can't afford to do what Europe in particular has done and, you know, like pay businesses to close down and support all these people who lose their jobs. And we can't afford to overwhelm the health system. And they bet that by closing borders, they would be able to save the domestic economy. And they ended up being right. Um, so their economy grew by 2.9% in 2020. But I think, yeah, that a lot of countries like looked at those trade-offs and you have to remember, right, in in even last March, there were still discussions and there's, there are still discussions now about whether herd immunity is the correct strategy and whether, you know, how much of a threat does this virus really pose? Last March, it was like we were seeing the Northern Italian hospital system become overwhelmed and There were these questions of like, can this really happen here? Is there something unique to Italy? There was a lot of denial. And and I think like it's a political question, right? How, How much acceptance will there be in the population of like a total border closure if this ends up not being the threat that some people are saying it is? What's interesting about Vietnam, so obviously they share this border with China. They have a highly like fraught relationship with China, lots of mistrust. And so this proximity um, is also what I think caused them to snap to action pretty quickly and say, um, we can't mess around. And there were also reports that they had intelligence from Wuhan so that they had been um, basically yeah, spying on, on the government and maybe they knew things that other countries didn't know at an earlier stage. And that might have also been why they acted pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, I want to sharpen the contrast here uh, that that Julia is drawing between Vietnam and and everyone else, uh, because I think there are two points that are worth emphasizing as to why this policy ended up being relatively unique. I say relatively, because it's not the only country that shut borders. But one is that it's not just a border with China or access to intelligence. It's that Vietnam and China have a pretty fraught relationship, hostile political relationship. Vietnam sees China with real justification as a significant security threat, And it's just more likely, like a lot of other East Asian countries, to be skeptical of narratives that are coming out of Beijing as this being not such a big deal. You don't have to worry about it. We have it contained, et cetera. Whereas, like, you know, even in the early days, Trump, a famous China skeptic in his public facing rhetoric, was like, oh, yeah, President Xi, he told me he's got it covered. So he's got it covered. Right. And the other part of it, uh, which Julie gets into a little in the piece, uh, is that the revealed wisdom of public health experts at the time, was that border closures aren't particularly effective. You know, this owes to uh, experience with previous diseases like um, SARS and Ebola. And it it seemed in those cases that limited border restrictions didn't work. The difference between Vietnam and these past cases is that Vietnam shut down everything, as opposed to just trying to apply a targeted travel ban looking at particular countries, which is what the U.S. tried, uh, for example. In its particular experience. So that explains why this outcome worked. And then a third thing, sort of more of a question for the table than anything else, is it seems like it wasn't just the, the travel ban itself. It's not like you shut down borders and everything. It's fine. It's what the travel ban enables in Vietnam, yeah. right? It's that when you have so few people coming in, it allows you to more effectively contact trace and quarantine the people who do end up testing positive to prevent anyone who's bringing in the disease or domestically who gets it through some other kind of community transmission means from from causing an outbreak.
2: Totally. And, and before we talk about the domestic response, I think it's worth saying a little bit about this past experience. So what, what we saw in like in the West Africa, 2014-2016 Ebola outbreak, what we saw in the SARS um, pandemic, and, and and basically with every pandemic threat of like the last swine 20, flu, avian flu, swine flu, yep. The evidence that we had from these previous outbreaks was that not only did these targeted restrictions not work, they came with enormous costs to the economies that were already, you know, trying to respond to a terrible outbreak they drove cases underground so people found ways around them you know like let's say flights from toronto to paris were shut off well you would then fly to london and then go directly to toronto and just lie about your your place of origin so they drove cases underground in the in the case of the west africa outbreak they made it hard for for aid workers and resources to reach West Africa, so we saw these harms, and then we didn't see the benefit of of actually controlling um, the importation of disease. And I and many others made the mistake of extrapolating from that evidence to to the coronavirus at the beginning of the outbreak because it seemed completely unfathomable that countries would do yeah what Vietnam and a few others have, have ended up doing, and something that also proved to be effective.
3: Yeah, I think like it's really important, and you know the whole hindsight is twenty twenty thing here, like. I think that's a huge point is that at the time, like we didn't know then all of the stuff we know now about how the pandemic was going to to play out, about how even how the virus really spread, right? Like we thought it was spreading mostly like on surfaces and people touching things like in restaurants and passing the salt and, and thinking that the germs went that way. Remember we went through the whole like cleaning everything all the time, people like scrubbing their vegetables because <laughs> we didn't really know that it was like primarily through the air. And, like, I remember, too, just myself thinking early on, like, I remember seeing, well, Julia, reading your pieces early on about this strange, you know, pneumonia-like illness that had started to spread in China. But, like, you were one of the early ones reporting on this. And I remember thinking, like, oh, that's, you know, that's really bad. It's going to be, you know, that could potentially be, like, a bad, you know, virus outbreak for that region, right? But I kind of thought of it like, it's not going to come here because— you know, we've heard about other ones like Zika and SARS and like, they, you know, they had outbreaks that spread, right? Like there's MERS, like the Middle East, there was there. But I remember thinking like, there's no way, like, not that there was no way, but that it, like I've heard it before and it was all scary before, but it never really materialized in the way that we thought into a global outbreak. So of course, this one's going to go the same way. But like, you know, we were all operating under the assumptions that like, all you can do is extrapolate. From previous experiences, right? So it's not, you know, in your defense, I don't, I don't think it was, it was wrong to do that because what else can you do? But you know, try to go on what you know so far and, and hope that that works. But I think that's the thing that also in your piece is really interesting is that part of the SARS experience also seems to be part of why Vietnam did this early on because they remembered like previous, you know, outbreaks had spread to them very quickly, and so they were like, nope, shut it down.
2: Yeah, a couple of things like this idea that this physical proximity to countries, like this idea that, you know, Vietnam is so close to China. And so, of course, like there's this heightened sense that the virus could show up there really quickly and spin out of control in talking to people like in a global world. We really need to absorb that, you know, you hop on a flight and what is is it? Twelve hours later, you're you're in New York um, from Beijing or whatever it is. And and you're you're potentially carrying a virus with you, and vice versa. You know the places that we go, we're bringing potentially bringing health threats or introducing um, disease in these new places. And yeah, the world is really small now. And and um, yeah, one of the lessons of the pandemic is that you know health threats that seem distant can show up on our doorstep and in, in our homes really really quickly if we don't properly plan. And then this question of like when when do you when do you call it? Yeah. Like, the, the media and the WHO and political leaders were absolutely, completely um, lambasted or, or, like, shit on. <laughs> you can say shit on.
1: <laughs> yep, that 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 works.
2: But yeah, for for overreacting to swine flu that didn't end up being a big threat, and it was like you know the media hyped it, and um, you know that that political leaders overreacted and scared the population, and stockpiled drugs that we didn't end up needing. And so there, there's a real um, cost to calling it too early. And in reporting the piece, one of my sources said to me, like, there's something like 200 pathogens every year that could go pandemic. Do you shut your borders down to everyone? And, and we know now from the Vietnam experience that these border closures only work if you put them in before or after community transmission takes place. So if a virus is already spreading widely, they're not going to be as effective. And um, how do you call that, right? So so they, they work the best when the measure looks the most like extreme overreaction. So yeah, it's a tricky one to calibrate. Like another thing people brought up was, hey, like the next time there's a, a pandemic threat, like just think that the answer is closing our borders. The um, pathogen might have different properties where it's not as effective for whatever reason. Um you know, and again there are costs to closing borders. So so it's a you know, it's a really, really complex thing to respond to to these emerging infections.
4: Gosh, that that brought up a lot of things. Uh first, uh let me get my conspiracy theory out of the way, which I know I've been planning to say. Oh, here oh, we go. Boy. <laughs> get your tinfoil hats it's, it's, on, it's, guys.
1: It's, Alex Jones over here.
4: <laughs> Maybe it's because I've been inundated with bad news. I just have a lot of trouble believing that the cases were that low, roughly 2800 and then only 35 deaths. Vietnam's government is not known for being uber transparent and like real, and the same way that I don't really trust Chinese numbers, by the way, I really don't trust China's numbers. Um I kind of don't trust Vietnam's numbers. Um it's possible. Like it, I I I openly concede that it's could be completely true and I'm just like in disbelief of how successful it was. But I just, I, I can't shake this feeling that there's something a little wrong with the numbers. But it is undeniably true that, like, life in Vietnam has re- re- gone back to a bit of normal. So um, I'm probably wrong, but just, I I have my tinfoil hat on, so I'm going to just act like I... Like no, it's I, worth
2: stating, right? It's a single-party government. It's a repressive government. One, one thing, like, they have... Yeah, Zach, you wanted to talk about the domestic response. Yes, I did.
1: Thank you. Um,
2: You know, they have this extensive contact tracing program. So they, like, if you talk to people in Vietnam, they talk about the F, the F zeros, the F ones, and the F twos. So the F zeros are index cases, and then F ones are the immediate contacts, and F twos are one rung out. And they trace all those contacts, and they immediately isolate the F zeros in hospital, the people who test positive in hospital. They monitor the quarantine of the immediate contacts. They they put them in a quarantine facility. And they can do that because, you know, they have this, they, they spy on their population. There's like an intense surveillance apparatus there that's enabled this, this um, rigorous contact tracing program. So, yeah, de- definitely these things go hand in hand. It is worth saying, like, they have had three waves. So they have had cases, they have had outbreaks, but they've rapidly brought them under control. And we didn't come across like, you know, working with reporters there, talking to um, like the World Bank, talking to these other um, groups that are situated there. Everyone said life is, unless you're in a place where someone is just tested positive, where they do these targeted lockdowns, life is normal. Children are in school. They're hugging their grandparents. People are in restaurants. They're going to bars. Um, I was so jealous talking (laughs) to the people in this story because they always had like friends over the night before and dinner parties and birthday parties and the the reporters i was working with would share like you know we were um out drinking with our friends last night and like sharing shots and <laughs> having fun what? and um yeah like no they, they and and i think like the way to think about it is this border um they can so effectively do things like contact tracing cuz they have so few cases so like western countries have basically for the most part I think either never tried it or gave up because cases were case numbers were just too big. And um, yeah, you can you can have a domestic response um, that's that detailed when you've controlled the number of cases in the country.
4: Yeah, it just sounds like a Sweden that worked.
2: But different because yeah. they didn't. They well, didn't, right. My, they didn't.
4: My, my point is like Sweden tried to have it all and Vietnam gets to have it all, it seems, because they actually did the right things early and often.
2: Yeah, that, that's what I, and the, the other thing that came up with this question of, like, governance, um, the people who have done these analyses on, like, you know, is it just that it's this um, authoritarian government that's the reason for its success, but they have trouble finding, like, it's not a consistent link that that explains a country's success, And and what I kept hearing again and again was, like, they just did the right things in public health. They tested massively from the beginning. They did contact tracing. They they did enforced and supported isolation. They did all these like measures that we've been talking about for months, and we know work. And they were supported by um, this border closure.
1: Yeah, it it. I mean, it strikes me if you look at other countries that are successful, especially in the Asia Pacific, like South Korea or Taiwan or New Zealand. Right, you can see some elements of the Vietnamese response. Vietnam combined all of them together in an especially effective way. But the countries I just listed were deliberately, for a reason, democratic countries. So this isn't just like a policy that was enabled by a repressive regime. It's that a repressive regime, as you just put it, Julia, did the right things. Um, and speaking of that, we're we're going to take a quick break because when we come back, we're going to talk about what lessons we can learn. From the Vietnamese experience going forward in the pandemic, if any, if there's anything that can be done to replicate the stuff at the late stage we're in for the rest of the world.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's hits the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S Y
1: L V A N 29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about Vietnam's remarkable success handling the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, At how they've been able to keep life at, in some ways, a relatively normal pace through a combination of extreme travel restrictions and really intense public health measures in terms of things like contact tracing, right? So now we want to talk about whether or not there are any lessons from this that are applicable to other countries right now who are still grappling with serious outbreaks. Uh, So to my mind, Julia, the big one right now, the one that everyone's talking about, is is India, uh, which we may tackle on a future show because the scale of the outbreak there is is truly mind-boggling. You mentioned earlier that part of the reason that China didn't have a ridiculous number of cases, uh, even despite being the source of the outbreak, is because they isolated Wuhan relatively effectively. I'm wondering if there's anything that can be done like that to take a kind of internal domestic-focused travel restriction and testing response in a place like India that's suffering from a serious outbreak, or whether it's too late already. There's just community spread across the country, and and there's nothing that you can do to try to control it in the way that travel restrictions control things.
2: What you touched on is absolutely correct. Like, Wuhan, it was so early in the pandemic. Basically, the analyses of the domestic restriction in Wuhan suggest that they delayed spread to the rest of China and the rest of the world. So they bought the world time, time that like not enough countries used. Um, so that was one thing that also came up in the Vietnam response. They actually used that time that China bought the world. Um, but now, like India, we already have the virus obviously seeded around the world. Um, we've already seen outbreaks linked to India around the world for in, from travelers. And the domestic situation is so out of control now I think obviously domestic public health measures can work but when you have um community transmission that's that rampant just imposing travel restrictions isn't going to do much um or, th- or at least that's what it looks like we've we've learned so far about the coronavirus and the use of these measures and I think like the, the idea there now is that what what can help is vaccines and obviously there's a vaccine shortage so we're seeing like, you know, what is it? The world's richest countries have purchased more than 50% of the vaccine stock and the world's poorest like 9%. And and a country like India needs more vaccines.
3: I think there's also a point there. Our longtime worldly friend and uh, sometime guest host Jen Kirby did a, a really great piece on what has kind of led to this huge outbreak uh, second wave in India, and, and she and another of our reporters um, on the science team, Umer Irfan, have a piece coming uh, about what you know India can do and, and some of the lessons here. But one of the things that they found in their reporting and that Jen found is the issue of political will, right? And I think that in part goes back to you know the conversations that we had in the first half about you know, responses and overreactions and costs, including economic costs to these like hardcore lockdowns, you know, that could, I could see them doing like a full on lockdown in some of the cities in India where the, you know, the, the spread is really particularly bad, but there's absolutely no political will to do that. And beyond that, the outbreak itself is being caused because they thought they essentially had it under control and they kind of got complacent. And like, Prime Minister Narendra Modi was like his party was holding political rallies, mostly unmasked and, you know, allowing you, uh, religious festivals and pilgrimages, you know, huge gatherings of tens of thousands of people to happen and not saying, hey, maybe stay home. So I think, you know, going back to kind of the, the issue of governance here, you also actually just have to have a government that is on top of it <laughs> and that is willing to make those hard decisions, be it a democracy you know, like New Zealand, or you know, a, a repressive regime like Vietnam. Somewhere, you need to have someone at the top who is saying, "We are going to make the call. We are going to do this." And I think that's one of the issues that we're seeing here is that the politics of this is really fraught from country to country, and it it's really hard. I mean, we see that here in the U.S. Right with you know Texas early on lifting the mask mandate. While a lot of public health experts were saying, not a great idea, but they're saying, oh, well, we're going to do it because we can. And so, you know, I think in the India context, like we can talk about things that might work, but that's all well and good unless they're going to actually try them.
4: I I found it fascinating that the farmers' protests that we've talked about on the show actually, like, didn't seem to lead to, like, didn't seem to be super spreader events, didn't seem to, when farmers went back to their territories, didn't seem to add too much. I mean, I'm sure there's some, um, but, you know, that was one of the potential culprits here. And it turns out that for as far as we know, it really wasn't the case. Um, I will mention a piece I did on India and its lockdown back in March 2020 when it, you know, that was right when Narendra Modi put on a a multi-week lockdown of the country. But what doctors in, in India told me, here's what one told me, said, we expect 55% of the Indian people will get COVID-19 infection, 300 to 500 million cases over the next four months. If the current disease trajectory is anything to go by, we expect 1 million to 2 million deaths in India over a one-year period. Now, that didn't come to pass, by the way. I should know, right? Because it's been more than a year. But what sort of I've gone back to him and others, and and they basically said, like, there's been a delay because it was initially political will and there wasn't. And so there was a sort of a stopping of what the trajectory was at the time. Uh, so they delayed this process. So if anything, it's like those catastrophic numbers, we, we may see them now. Maybe bringing it to sort of a, a, a broader context, I find it fascinating. Uh, this is a, a point our colleague Dylan Matthews made sharply on Twitter, but it's something I've been wrestling with for a while, which is like, it's kind of amazing to me that we haven't really had a broad discussion, not even like, not even, well, in the US for sure, but broadly, like, you know, we had 9-11, and our entire foreign policy and our entire stance on the world changed to basically a counterterrorism posture. There was an underwear bomber. We all take our shoes off at the airport. Here we have 500,000 dead in America and, like, you know, millions dead around the world. And, like, we're not really having a conversation about how do we safeguard against the next thing. We were talking about lessons learned from this one and, like, what we might apply when the next pandemic comes because there likely will be a next pandemic. And I have two sort of fears. One is, you know, we always tend to fight the last war, right, to use jargon that that people in the military talk to me about all the time. Like, we might take some of these lessons from this pandemic and apply it to the next one, and they might not be as effective because everything is a little different. There are always some overlap, uh, but it might not be, like, the right playbook. And then the other aspect here is we're not really changing anything about our, our local or global governance systems enough, or even really having the conversation, in, in my view, to protect against the worst. Uh, we're sort of just like, it's a thing to get through, right? I wanna get through this so I can get my vaccine so I can go out drinking again and hang out with my family, which by the way, great impulses. Like I, I get that, I, I feel them too. Uh, but it, I don't think we're having this serious discussion to actually like get ready for what's coming next. Like I, I, I this is not the awakening I had hoped for. Like if they were, this was all bad, right? <laughs> but if it was supposed to be one good thing, I guess there's supposed to be two good things. One was like sort of a more global cooperative movement, which we did not see, right? Vaccine nationalism and all that. And then just like a a broader preparation because we don't want to go through this again. Am am I missing something or is like-
3: So Alex, just so I'm clear, what you're calling for is a GWAP, a global war on pandemic. That's what I want,
4: want GWOP. Got it,
3: okay. GWAP. got it, nailed it.
1: Look, I- I I think that's a really, a really good point. And it's kind of in the spirit of the project that the Julia, your piece is contributing to, right? Like it's a broader Vox series on what we can learn from the experience of this pandemic.
3: It's called Pandemic Playbook. Check it out at vox.com. All right, sorry.
4: We'll
1: link we'll link to it in the show notes. Obligatory plug. We got to. We love our colleagues' work. We're really proud of, of Julia's piece and these other ones. But it really is the case that in a lot of countries. A lot of the pandemic restrictions, the U.S. is obviously, uh, you know, the the number one example here. Pandemic restrictions became politicized during the lockdown periods before vaccination was widely available, and it still isn't for a lot of countries. Um, And even then, the vaccines themselves are politicized to a degree, right? And so it makes you wonder, right, like to what extent it's possible to do what Alex is just describing in a political environment where proposing something like, you know, a, a preventative version of the Vietnamese strategy, where if there's another thing that seems like it might be really, really bad again, you just like locked out all of our borders right away. Right? That plays into a number of different political factions' opinions on how you handle and deal with the potential for a pandemic. Um, so I'm curious, Julius, as if, as you've been thinking about like the lessons of the Vietnamese experience, you thought it all about— Like how this plays into broader political dynamics that have surrounded the pandemic globally and and the way in which these restrictions have become part of uh, the sort of contours of political
2: conflict. I think like one one thing that became so obvious, we're putting on Vietnam. So they only just started to roll out the vaccine in February in health workers. Um, So months after the U.S. and the U.K. and other countries were well into their vaccination effort. And this, like this, willingness in a country that didn't have as many resources as places like the U.S., U.K., Israel, to just like let the virus run rampant and mess around with it. They they used these well-tested, old-fashioned public health restrictions. You know, the population made sacrifices, and they seem to have paid off in this case with this particular virus. And wh- whereas we're seeing in other countries, like yeah, in the U.S. in particular, this like unwillingness to to give up. You know personal liberty and and freedom or, or whatever the, you know, to, to not want to wear it, to not want to have to wear a mask, to not want to have to stay home from church or, or football, but to not want to, to give up on these like events that are so important to people for at least a period and, and then to look to a new health technology and invest billions in it and like, you know, wait for the new health technology being the vaccine. And we're seeing obviously it seems to be paying off right now in, in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, but after, at the cost of like millions of people sick and dead, and so if if yeah other countries had kind of yeah been, been more willing to make those trade-offs, um, like what, one interesting thing was talk, talking to Europeans and Americans who are based in Vietnam, and and like when when they would travel back to Europe or talk to their families back home, um, they all said like we're living, we feel in Vietnam, like we're living so much more of a free life than our families. Because yes, we go, we have to go through this like mandatory quarantine period when we enter the country, but then we've basically had a normal life here for the last year, whereas our families, they can't see each other. They can't, you know, go into the office and see their colleagues. They can't see their grandparents. Like they've been living this kind of life of fear and isolation over the last year. And I, so I wonder like yeah, if going forward People will be more willing to make those sacrifices, but now, now that we've seen this like delayed vaccine payoff, even after there have been so many cases and and deaths, and the, and the U.S. to its credit did come up with um, incredibly effective. Actually, I guess they were developed partially in Europe, but um, the West did did come out with these like incredibly USA, effective.
1: USA, USA, USA. Operation Warp Speed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but Alex, what you said about fighting the last war—it's such an important point too. One big reminder is that different pathogens pose different health threats. They transmit in different ways. What works for the coronavirus might not work um, for the next thing that poses a threat to us. And so how do we take what we learned and then take like these measured and effective responses next time? It's really tricky. And I think it's like it's also what we struggle with in climate change, right? It's like this. um, Many of us are like increasingly feeling the effects of, of global warming, but it's still feels like this like abstract future threat that yeah it's hard to kind of like muster the political, collective political will to do what needs to be done now for what's going to happen in five years or 20 years. So, but yeah, the next pandemic is around the corner and it's what people in global health were saying for the last, I don't know how many years since like, I guess maybe Ebola and, and uh, many health threats before that, that we're overdue, we're overdue, we're overdue. And it did still seem like this abstract thing.
3: Yeah. I think about this point about whether we, you know, are going to make radical changes to our lives to prevent the next pandemic or, you know, next public health outbreak. And I think about myself and very narcissistically, apparently, but, you know, with masking, right? Like many countries in East Asia in particular, people wear masks Anyway, even when there's not a pandemic, when they're in public, if they're sick, if they have a cough, or whatever, for pollution. Yeah, also pollution. But it's kind of like you know, if you go on the subway or the metro, and you know, to avoid just kind of out of a sense of community and to avoid spreading your germs, you put on a face mask. And you know, I think about myself and and how much you know wearing a face mask has become just like standard protocol for me, and it's just like what I do, and yet. You know, we know that it, it seems to have helped like with the flu, right? Even when COVID is is gone, even though if it may never be gone, it may still be out there spreading it at some level. But, you know, we still have the flu every year, right? And masking would probably help a lot with cutting down on the spread of the flu every year. And yet, as soon as like my vaccinations were done, I was like, done with this mask. Like I already forgot. Like yesterday, I was walking into the grocery store and I was like halfway to the door before I realized, to the door of the store before I realized I had forgotten to put my mask on. And like, it was that fast after a whole year of like obsessively wearing a mask for me to forget. And so I think about that, like, it's it's hard to change human behavior, right? It's not easy. I think it, it, it does take political will. It does take a long time. You know, I think about the, the 1918 flu pandemic and the way that you know, things changed uh, slowly, culturally, and even in terms of, like, architecture and housing and air conditioning units and things like that. Like, a lot of things changed because of that that experience. But I don't know if that's going to happen this time around, right? Like, are we going to start wearing masks during flu season, right? I I started thinking about, like, if I start to get back on the Metro when things start reopening or like two years from now, would I put on a mask or would I feel like I was being weird? And like, are people going to stare at me and think I'm weird if I wear a mask? Like, And if it's just that one individual thing, like how do you do that at a societal level?
4: Based on the bar I saw last night, I think people are are done with masks, Uh, right? (laughs) Like just 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 like viscerally. I and I've been to Korea and Japan a lot, like in the last four years. (laughs) And when I take the the subway, like I'm one of the few, and it's usually foreigners that don't have a mask on, and like no one looks at you weirdly because they sort of know you're foreigners and you're not into masks. But (laughs) like that's just kind of it. Where, like, here, it's it's weird to wear a mask. Like, I've... I've maybe not DC. DC's very pro-mask. But, like, there have been other places I've been to, like, my folks live out in, in the boonies. And, like, you know, wearing a mask there is... People look at you like, really? You're, you're doing that here? It's it's a fascinating contrast. Uh, it, it's cultural, it seems. Like, I'm not trying to paint too broad a brush, but like, it, it seems to be like it, it is ingrained in a culture. So I, I don't think you're wrong to, like, feel like, mask off, it's time. I mean, heck, when the CDC gave out its guidance like they were pretty clear about like here's where you can wear a mask and here's where you can't and like nowhere did they say maybe just consider it in general in your daily life um it was just like you right. don't have to wear this face prison anymore you're good
2: <laughs> face prison <laughs> the thing about how how quickly like it seemed totally absurd for people in yet yeah, western countries to wear masks and then how quickly that changed or, yeah you know, again, like what Wuhan did seems so like Wuhan under lockdown. This draconian measure that we've never we haven't seen in, in I don't, we've never seen a, a country do what um, what China did with Wuhan back then. And then look at all the, how how every country followed suit and how we all lived the last year in lockdown. Yeah, I think I don't know. I think like th- these things can change. And I guess like one one lesson from the pandemic playbook is so obvious, but like the, the you know the virus was more or less the same everywhere right but these political decisions made a huge difference and maybe maybe there'll be more tolerance from the public for overreaction in the future this is always the tricky thing with public health that you you don't see the benefits of it when it works right so like if everyone went the way of vietnam last year maybe we wouldn't have had this global pandemic but then maybe you know we'd be writing snarky articles about the the way people did with um, swine flu, which was a slightly different scenario, but um, talking about what overkill that was and how um, the media was hyping this and scaring people and how politicians, you know, acted absurdly.
1: I I think about that point all the time. It's like a generalized problem in policy analysis, right? Like, so if you talk about, say, the 2011 Libya intervention— Right. We talk a lot about the negative consequences of that, but we can't know the hypothetical world in which the U.S. didn't intervene and perhaps predictions of like widespread slaughter of civilians would have turned out to be true. And so you have this weird debate over that particular military action right now where people are saying, look at the bad thing that happened. And other people are saying, well, yes, that was bad, but look at the hypothetical alternatives. They probably would have been worse. And it's ultimately irresolvable. Uh, you just sort of have to make your best guess. And it's particularly acute in the in the case of pandemics because, as we've seen, they're kind of all or nothing affairs. right? If you don't stop the pandemic early on or the the disease that could become a pandemic, the entire world suffers in, in a way that none of us, I think I can speak for all of us, plainly, maybe not you, Julia, because you're a health reporter, but none of us thought we'd experience in our life.
3: oh times. I think I think Alex probably did. He's been super super freaked out about this for a while, just knowing. Uh, Stories that he's pitched in his defense. Alex has been warning about this for a while too.
1: <laughs> I just didn't think anything like this was. Gonna yeah,
3: happen. fair enough. I, I don't bad. want to speak I for will, you, I will, Alex. I will. Talk no,
1: no, <laughs> I did. <laughs>
4: I was, I okay, was, I, I, was, I thought <laughs> so. I was really. Okay. I was super worried, and I pitched like a big thing on like we should actually be. Fearing the next pandemic and not to put Jen on blast, but she was like, I don't think this is gonna be a thing.
2: No, okay. <laughs> That's not super fair.
4: I know, I just it just after oh. you were very kind to me. Well,
2: no, it's not just Jen if, if she was not on on board, but it was like really hard to get people to care about these things for sure. And even like readers didn't care as much. Like we saw this explosion in interest in in the COVID articles when we were already when COVID was already running <laughs> rampant in the US. These things seem like abstract, distant threats until suddenly they're not, right? And suddenly, um, yeah, we haven't seen our families yeah. in a year or, you know, traveled anywhere and, like, drastically changed our lives. But Jen, I'm totally with you that it's really easy to forget these lessons. Like, I remember talking to this senior public health person, some like, midway through the pandemic, and he was saying, someone should write an article about the death of handshakes, and then um, Europe last summer, like completely relaxed, and and everything opened up again, and everyone was like hugging and shaking hands, and it was like there was no global pandemic right. happening. Anyway, so yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting. But but I'm I'm hopeful. Like what one one I was talking to a researcher yesterday about this, like the the inequities in vaccine access that we're seeing, and he was calling for something like a PEPFAR, which is the mm, the George yeah. W. Bush. Um, Hugely successful program to combat AIDS in other countries, and since 2003, they've given out something like 90 billion dollars toward AIDS. And AIDS is one disease that really got elevated on the political agenda for a number of reasons. And a rich country like the U.S. said, "Hey, like we have to show leadership here. We're going to put tons of money into to fighting this disease." And so that shows you what can happen when. And and obviously, yeah, that, that we we've seen. HIV go from being a life sentence into just like a chronic illness, not just a chronic illness, it's a really serious disease, but something that people live with now because of, you know, the, the scientific and, and political will that went into fighting it. And maybe um, maybe we will learn something and and we will see that same kind of um, investment in COVID and, and in future pandemic threats.
1: So we're going to leave you with that rare bit of worldly optimism. Uh, I want to thank Julia for coming on and being an excellent guest and, and helping us all learn about Vietnam and the general question of, of taking lessons from the pandemic experience. I want to thank Sophie Lalonde, our producer. You guys know how important Sophie is to the show in general in bringing us uh, wonderfully clear audio and Alex's soccer rant last week, which it seems like you all enjoyed. And I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcast. Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, we're there. So come listen to us. And with that, we'll talk to you next week.
4: Bye.